You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Okay, good morning, distinguished guests, uh, the Honourable Minister. Welcome to Toronto Centre's Executive Panel on Promises and Perils of Digital Transformation. I'm Babak Abbasade, CEO of Toronto Centre. By the way, Toronto Centre will soon be celebrating its 25th anniversary. In our first quarter century, we have trained more than 20,000 central bankers and other financial supervisors from 190 countries and territories to become change agents for building more stable and inclusive financial systems. New digital transformations are triggering profound changes in the financial sector and the economy, and can play a pivotal role in enhancing financial stability, consumer protection, greater financial inclusion, and in expediting the implementation of uh, the SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals. That's why digital transformation is one of the three pillars of the upcoming G20. While the opportunities are plentiful, we also need to avoid pitfalls such as financial crime, cyber risk, operational risk, and breaches in data and privacy protection. For SDGs, the promise that digitalization holds for financial inclusion, empowerment of women in developing countries, and climate action will not fulfill itself. Financial regulators play a big role and must work collaboratively with other stakeholders within the development ecosystem to design risk-based oversight that not only mitigates risks, but also promotes innovation. Today, our distinguished speakers will share their knowledge on this complex issue. They are Dietrich Domanski, who is on his way. He's the Secretary General of the Financial Stability Board Cecilia Skinsley, Head of BIS Innovation Hub, and uh, Mr. Don He, Deputy Director, MCM of IMF. We're also happy that our wonderful colleague, Natalie Afavre of Banque de France is moderating this important conversation. You have already seen their bios. Toronto Centre's mission is generously supported by our key institutional funders, Global Affairs Canada, the Swedish CEDA, and the IMF. We're also very fortunate to receive project-specific support from the Jersey Overseas Aid, which is also a key part of the Government of Jersey's international outreach. Today, it's my pleasure to introduce our opening speaker, the Honorable Ian Gorst, the Minister of Treasury of the Government of Jersey. For more than two decades, he has held leadership roles in Jersey's government. I have had the pleasure of being in Jersey and for those of you who are, uh, may not be familiar, it has a long history from uh, fishing cod to being home of the world-famous Jersey cow and Jersey's royal new potatoes. And in recent decades, more impressively, has diversified its economy by becoming a sophisticated financial services center working alongside London and New York. As an island off the coast of France, Jersey understands the importance of cooperation and collaborative action to address the global, social, economic, and environmental issues of our time. The minister's colleague, uh, the Honorable Caroline Labbe, whom I've had met, she's the minister responsible for um, Jersey Overseas Aid and International Development. And the organization is highly committed to increasing financial inclusion, and they do fund uh, strongly Toronto Center's programs in Ethiopia, Rwanda, Malawi, Nepal, and Zambia. Uh, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Minister uh, Gerst to the podium to deliver his brief remarks. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much indeed, and good morning, everyone. It's a uh, pleasure for me uh, to be here this morning, and I'd like to thank the Toronto Centre for bringing us together uh, today. 
As the Minister for Treasury for the Government of Jersey, the policy tools, uh, projects and programmes that help governments to achieve healthy and stable economies are of particular interest and importance. And in the face of the current economic, social and environmental challenges facing governments around the world, as has been the subject of much discussion uh, during this week of IMF and World Bank meetings, the work of organisations such as the Toronto Centre is absolutely uh, critical. I'm delighted that Jersey has such a close and long-standing relationship with the Centre, particularly as we've just heard through our development agency, Jersey Overseas Aid, uh, as we work together on initiatives that promote greater financial stability, better financial preparedness and management, and greater financial inclusion. The Government of Jersey is committed to maintaining its support for uh, its aid agency with an annual grant to help deliver its wide-ranging programme of international development and humanitarian aid. And my colleague, as we've just heard, the Minister for International Development, Deputy Labby, has spearheaded the evolution of our aid objectives to key areas of delivery now being its programme of work to support greater financial inclusion in developing countries. As a successful hub for professional services, Jersey understands the value of financial services and that access to and the use of such services is critical in driving global development. Digitisation, the theme of today's session, is a vital enabler of this. The benefits of financial inclusion are hard to overstate. As we all know, there are roughly 1.7 billion people around the world that are unbanked and do not have access to financial services. This means that they cannot easily save for their children's education, take out a loan to buy seeds and fertilisers, or buy insurance to protect them from medical or natural disasters. Digital innovation can be a game-changer for those that are traditionally marginalised, when used effectively, digital solutions can empower people to have a better future. Firstly, digital payments address the inefficiencies of cash by reducing the time and the costs of having to travel to transact. Secondly, digitisation plays a critical role in leveraging digital technology to drive financial inclusion through meeting the specific needs of currently excluded market segments. And thirdly, digital payments uh, to the financially excluded can also present an opportunity to access other financial services, such as savings, credit and insurance. Uh, Jersey's financial inclusion programme targets poor and marginalised groups and delivered in conjunction with the Toronto Centre is helping to widen financial inclusion globally. Jersey's relationship with the centre not only includes the work of Jersey Overseas Aid, but also engagement through our regulator, the Jersey Financial Services Commission. The Commission representatives have undertaken workshops with the Toronto Centre in recent years, including securities training alongside global partners from regulatory bodies and central banks. This has helped to build sound regulatory practices across the globe and develop leaders who can implement and promote better financial stability. By creating a more socially conscious financial ecosystem, the Toronto Centre's work with development agencies such as the JOA can drive progress by bringing more people into the financial community and promoting an inclusive approach to financial regulation. So once more, I'd like to uh, thank the Centre very much for facilitating this discussion, and I look forward to uh, hearing its conclusions. Thank you. Okay, I promise you it's the last time you'll see me. Um, uh, Minister, thank you very much for your inspiring comments. As the Minister of Treasury, we have to get you a bodyguard to get you out of here. So please bear with us, uh, safety in numbers. And Natalie, without further ado, please take it away. And uh, uh, good morning, uh, everyone. Uh, I'm uh, very pleased to be here for this discussion to moderate this uh, um, this panel. And um, I thank the Toronto Center for organizing this uh, this forum. Um, maybe a few words for uh, introdu as introduction. Um, as you mentioned, digital transformation is uh, 
moving as, at a fast pace. Um, but it's, it goes beyond just technology, uh, and it has become part of any business strategy for both public and uh, private uh, financial players. I think it, it's important to have this in, uh, in mind. Uh, of course, digital transformation uh, presents opportunities for faster and cheaper operations. Um, and we see new players uh, bringing new services at a lower cost, competitive cost. So it's a real transformation, uh, in particular in the payment ecosystem, it was mentioned. But we see also uh, movements in the financial, in financial markets and uh, with the emergence of so-called tokenized finance uh, and a series of enablers uh, for it, crypto assets, uh, stable coins, and uh, more, more broadly uh, distributed ledger technologies. So as promoters for, uh, uh, for payment systems, security, but also innovation, of course, uh, the public authorities have started to to study how they could uh, embrace new technologies to improve their own services uh, and processes. Uh, and it led, for example, uh, to the investigation of uh, central bank digital currencies, CBDCs. And the uh, Banque de France has been very active in this field with experiments. And many central banks actually are conducting uh, experiments. So Cecilia uh, will expand on the most up-to-date overview of uh, innovation for central banks and CBDC uh, projects around the world, and there are many, many. Um, but on the other side, um, many opportunities, but also many risks. Uh, so uh, we really need to look at how risks are um, allocated among these new players, with these new uh, assets, with this new technology. Um, and uh, the recent crypto winter, as we call it, is a good illustration of that. So this calls for an appropriate international response from uh, public authorities in a coordinated manner. The IMF has been regularly advocating uh, for international uh, coordination and Dong will give us uh, his perspective. Um, of course, also, uh, many standard setters are working on this issue of regulation of crypto assets, stable coins, uh, the Basel Committee, the CPMI IOSCO, uh, etc. And uh, uh, of course, uh, it is under the umbrella of the Financial uh, Stability Board, the FSB, and uh, Dietrich uh, will certainly comment on that. So, this is for our first round of discussion. And in the second round of discussion, we will explore more the uh, impact of uh, digital transformation for cross-border uh, payments. We have this G20, uh, pay, uh, uh, the G20 roadmap for cross-border payment, the improvement of cross-border payment, which is a top priority. And maybe this new technology could really change, be a, a game changer. So I start, uh, if you agree, Dong, <laughs> with you. Um, the financial sector has undergone deep changes over recent decades. Uh, so in your opinion, what are the three, three main issues uh, stemming from digital transformation that we've been observing and what can policymakers uh, do about them? Thank you, thank you very much, Natalie. Thank you to uh, Toronto Centre for inviting me here. It's a, a honor to be on the same stage as Cecilia, Dietrich, and, and Natalie. Uh, so in the IMF, um, uh, of course, we have a very large membership. Uh, and we see these issues affecting their, their uh, policymaking uh, on a daily basis. So we have been having a lot of uh, bilateral conversations with the regulators, the central banks, during the annual meetings. But I think, to my mind, uh, there are three top quotes issues from both a domestic and international point of view. So the first um, uh, question is really uh, from a prudential and uh, conduct regulatory point of view. Uh, what are the new challenges uh, for 
uh, both efficiency and the stability. How do we take advantage of uh, efficiency gains, uh, but also managing the risks or uh, uh, guarding against the risks? Here, uh, you know, maybe we should start just step back a little bit to think what is the nature of digital innovation? What does it do? Uh, given the rapid uh, progress in te digital technology, such as uh, very easy access or proliferation of mobile devices, you know, particularly younger generation, even in lower income countries, mobile penetration really has been picking up tremendously. So easy access and pro proliferation of mobile devices, cloud computing, which has uh, made computing much cheaper and, and easier, uh, all these, uh, and of course, distributed ledger technology, which makes peer-to-peer -peer transfers, uh, transactions possible. So what, what the, these, these uh, changes really are leading uh, to a change in the financial landscape, in the sense that we are seeing both new instruments, new service providers, and the new networks of services. So new instruments, new players, and the new networks. Uh, so let me expand a little bit on each of that. New instruments, of course, we have seen uh, crypto assets. And now we are talking about central bank digital currencies. The official sectors are reacting to, to the challenges of arising of, uh, uh, of uh, new instruments. And um, new players, we have the fintech startups. They have entered financial services. And of course, we have the big techs. They are also entering financial services. So what's the challenge of these new players for the traditional financial institutions like commercial banks? Uh, is that going to change how we think about the advantages of commercial banking, both in terms of economies of scale and economies of scope? Economies of scale in the sense that you know, when, when, when you expand your customer space, the average cost of servicing declines. So how much commercial bank advantage, how, may, how much advantage do they have vis-a-vis -vis the big, big techs? And the economies of scale in the sense that traditionally banks benefit by offering a multiple a range of products to the same customer. So the co average cost of serving the customers decreases when you increase the range of products by making use of the fixed set of information about a particular customer, right? So is the entry of big techs changing the economies of scope as well? So the, these are the questions that uh, you know, new players are posing to how we think about uh, the risks or advantages of commercial, of traditional commercial banking. One quick example is that as we know, traditionally, commercial banks really find it very expensive to serve small customers, the small deposits and small loans. That's because the unit cost of commercial banks of serving these customers is really high. And the entry of big tax by making use of big data is going to reduce that cost dramatically. So this is where the opportunity for financial inclusion uh, comes. Now, new networks, the, the, the third element of what I said, is that we are really seeing new rails. For example, Cecilia's Innovation Hub is experimenting with all these new rails of connecting cross, uh, of, of different systems. That's, in, that's a very different system, different network or different rail as compared to the traditional commercial uh, correspondent banking relationships, which are based on bilateral economic relationships. So we'll talk about that in the second. Uh, so these, the new instruments, new players, and new networks are creating new risks or not. So the idea of same risk, same regulation, or same activity, same regulation, to a large extent, it still applies. The challenge here is, to, is how do we classify these new instruments, new players, and new rails into the existing framework? But there is also the challenge, are we seeing new uh, things that we cannot uh, neatly fit into the current framework? Is the current net regulatory framework, uh, does that have the need to evolve? So these are some of the big questions in the first top of issues of uh, prudential and the market conduct regulatory 
issues. The second one is really from a macro-financial point of view. As the fund, we care a lot about uh, macro-financial issues. So for example, we have seen crypto assets in some economies, the adoption uh, has become higher. So what's, what does that mean for the status of legal tender uh, for many smaller economies? Um, how, do we need, how do we safeguard monetary sovereignty and monetary stability? So that's one important uh, macro-financial issue. The second issue is from tax, uh, from fiscal policy point of view. So how do we, you know, do we tax them? Uh, how do we safeguard revenues? Uh, you know, uh, uh, are these new activities posing challenges to, to uh, fiscal policy frameworks? The third one, of course, is capital flow management. We know many of many of these crypto assets, newer trading channels are creating new patterns of capital flows. Are they creating challenges for the traditional way of managing capital flows? So that's a very important question for a lot of uh, uh, emerging markets and the lower income uh, countries. So that's the second bucket uh, or the second issue of new challenges. And uh, finally, this international collaboration or global collaboration. We know that many of these instruments are borderless. It's by nature. There's the idea of a geographically located service provider providing services to local population or residents. That just doesn't apply in many of these instances. And CBDCs, foreign CBDCs might also be very easily accessible to foreign residents. So these are creating important challenges for global uh, uh, collaboration. So, uh, one, one can easily think about um, a foreign service provider. We know, all know actually that uh, for the crypto space, 80% of the trading volumes are provided by service providers located in, in, in you know, a, 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 a cluster of um, uh, foreign uh, offshore financial centers, let's say. And they offer services to many customers that are, who are located in, uh, in, in developing or emerging markets. So how do we deal with this kind of international collaborative issues? Can we set up new um, supervisory arrangements to deal with cross-border provision of these services? So these are some of the uh, important global issues. And finally, uh, from a longer term point of view, by the way, you know, uh, the American futurist, uh, Roy Amara, this is the so-called Amara law, that we tend to overestimate the short run effect of a technology, but uh, underestimate the longer term effect of a technology. So thinking from a longer term point of view, are we, are we going to see very fundamental changes in the international monetary system? Uh, that's an important challenge. For example, would uh, new arrangements of using uh, central bank digital currencies, would, would that change the way firms invoice their exports or imports? Uh, would that change the demand for reserve assets? All these new issues will have some impact for the international monetary system. But of course, that's for the longer term. And, but you know, for IMF, IMF staff, and we, we are uh, gathering our efforts to try to understand uh, issues. So let me, let me stop here. I'm overrunning a little bit, but these are the top three issues on my mind, certainly. Very uh, important issues, very broad issues. And of course, uh, uh, a lot of work to do in order to uh, uh, find the right uh, answers to all these questions. And maybe one of the possible response is uh, innovation by mm. public sector, public authorities, mm. in order to uh, be able to compete with the private sector and offer safer solution. Uh, Cecilia, yeah. what is your view <laughs> and uh, your priorities in yeah. this uh, digital era? So uh, thank you very much, first, Natalie, for setting the stage. Uh, really fascinating to listen to you. And, and thank you, Toronto to Centre, to keep inviting me back. That's, uh, that's a good reassurance. Um, so I'm a month into my new job uh, at the uh, BIS Innovation Hub. So let me just say uh, a, a couple of short words around 
what that is about, and then I'll answer your, your, your questions. Um, uh, so BIS, you probably already know, Bank for International Settlements, an old international organization based in Basel in Switzerland, uh, organizing and helping central banks, uh, has a mandate to promote global monetary and financial stability, and is also hosting some of the uh, standard-setting bodies uh, regarding the financial system. Um, and uh, the technology and technological development is obviously happening at a rapid speed, and uh, some most of it is pretty mind-boggling, to, especially for people like me, who is, used to be a, a slow adapter when it comes to tech, but uh, now I've gone all into it, so I'm with the latest iPhone. I have a Robo Hoover in my flat, and it talks to me, uh, and it's quite rude, actually. It tells me to clean up, uh, and the likes. Um, it's a fantastic time to live in, uh, but we need, from our perspective, central banking perspective, think about, all right, so given all these changes, how do we uh, upgrade ourselves to become a better version of ourselves in terms of, of harnessing these possibilities and upgrading our systems so that the um, uh, private sector can innovate from that. So uh, you said, shall we compete with the private sector and then kind of try to run ahead of them? My short answer to that is no. Uh, we should be very clear about the distribution of responsibilities here. Um, and the private sector would always be much better at knowing what the customers need and then providing for that, that sort of service and goods. But when it comes to money and payments, uh, they, we, we, history has taught us that uh, it doesn't work very well if the, the public sector is doing all of it, but it doesn't work very well either when the private sector is the, is the sole issuer of money and, and provider of, of payment methods. So, so finding the right responsibilities here and kind of uh, move into this new world with the, with the digital solutions is, is a very exciting one. Um, so the BIS Innovation Hub was set up some three years ago uh, as a collaboration between, on one hand, BIS in Basel, but also, on the other hand, uh, central banks around the world. Uh, currently, we have uh, six centers, uh, two in Asia uh, and uh, four in, in, in Europe. And then we have uh, one coming up also in, in, in Canada, and we have a collaboration with, with the Federal Reserve in New York. Uh, they have a similar activity. Uh, six focus areas, uh, reg, um, financial market infrastructure, CBDC is obviously interesting in, in what we're talking about here today, but we're also looking into um, cybersecurity, green finance, open finance, and, and the subtech reg tech. But it's all... It's all about, it's not being another think tank, it's, it's about uh, looking into real problems that uh, the public sector have in, in kind of achieving their, their various roles and see what can new technology actually do to, to, to help that. Uh, so there's a number of, of really exciting um, technological projects um, that is uh, looking at these things and, and coming out with uh, uh, prototypes and proof of concepts uh, along the way. Uh, we have more than 20 projects currently. Uh, we also have a tech sprint, coding competitions, and uh, it's not only these uh, host central banks that are collaborating in, our, in the projects with the BIS, but there are also a number of other central banks, more than, more than 10 others, are, are kind of picking and choosing and collaborating with us that they find interesting. Um, but uh, tech is, not, is only part of the story, um, and uh, I'd like to point out uh, that there could be a bit of drama uh, sometimes <laughs> in this space. Very welcome on the panel, Dietrich. Um, and looking into the future, uh, the, um, our colleagues at the uh, uh, Monetary and, and Economics Department at the BIS has laid out what I think is a very beautiful vision for what the future digital monetary system could look like. It's in chapter three in the, in the annual uh, um, general uh, management, annual report of the BIS that was published in, in June, and it's about finding this sort of, it kind of elaborates on, on how to find and maintaining this sort of best division of responsibilities, where a central bank sort of sits at the, the core and the roots of the uh, monetary uh, system of the world, 
but uh, the private sector are the are the um, uh, branches and the and the leaves uh, of of the monetary tree. And uh, each country have one tree each, and the canopies are sort of connecting, and that's where you have the the cross border. Uh, payment solutions and, the, and, and all these countries' financial systems are sort of creating a, a forest and, and a healthy forest. Um, so we're looking into can you do uh, payments programmable? Uh, can you uh, tokenize? Um, can you uh, use these technologies to increase inclusion? But all with safety, stability, the accountability of central bank money but also making sure that the private sector develops things in a way that is safe, efficient, innovative, and the like. And to, to stop this part of the uh, discussion, the way we kind of see the future monetary system could possibly then have three components. So uh, wholesale CBDCs, you can think about it as just the next generation version of central bank money uh, that facilitates transactions between central banks and financial institutions. Second, those who choose to offer retail CBDCs in their domestic uh, jurisdictions. Fast payments is an is a, is a alternative, or they could work side by side. And last but not least, um, arrangements uh, that also enable cross-border operations. Um, Technology can take us part of the way, uh, but there are also other things that need to be done. But I'll, I'll save that for my next intervention. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much, Cecilia. And uh, welcome, Dietrich. Um, of course, we have spoken of opportunities, risks, and, uh, uh, and the central bank's respons possible responses with uh, CBDCs. Uh, but what we see currently is the uh, development of crypto assets, which is in the non-regulated space for the time being. So uh, maybe in parallel with this uh, work conducted by central banks, of course, we need to regulate and to, uh, um, to be sure that these new risks, or maybe uh, not new, but uh, born by new actors, are well under control. So. Um, Dietrich, can you please elaborate on the risks uh, the, these new assets, crypto assets, uh, stablecoins also pose, uh, both at the domestic and international levels? And um, how can we do, how can we organize ourselves in order to ensure that crypto assets uh, will be subject to robust regulation and supervision? Thank, thank you, Natalie, and uh, apologies for being late. Just too much going on these days, as uh, I think everybody can appreciate. So, um, crypto assets. The FSB has been has been monitoring um, and assessing uh, risks from crypto assets from a financial stability perspective um, early on, starting in 2018, and um, maybe sort of to put. Uh, our, our current work on, on crypto asset regulation to context, it may be useful to um, distinguish four phases of, of market development. So the first phase of development um, was between early 2018 and, and mid-2020, and that was essentially the first boom of, of Bitcoin and other what we these days would call unbacked crypto assets. And um, at the time, we developed a framework for monitoring um, and identified four channels through which uh, crypto assets might impact financial stability. One, if widely used as an investment vehicle, as an investment instrument through wealth effects. Uh, second, if widely used for payment purposes uh, through disruptions in, in payment services. Third, um, through growing and close interconnections with the established financial system. And fourth, um, through confidence effects affecting um, um, trust in the financial system and potentially not only in, 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 uh, in, the, in the crypto asset part. Now, um, in 2018, during this first phase, our assessment was that um, crypto assets do not pose uh, a risk to global financial stability simply because of the limited interconnections with the established financial system and the relatively um, contained size. Phase one. 
Phase two started with the announcement of, Libra, uh, of, of Facebook uh, to launch Libra. That changed the landscape um, completely because the announcement was aching to um, essentially uh, uh, supplying a digital payments instruments that could be used essentially by everybody. That was at least the original marketing pitch um, on a global scale. And uh, there, immediately, financial stability issues um, uh, were raised uh, related to uh, the stability of payment systems, um, uh, confidence effects, of course, but also uh, more from a macro-financial angle related to uh, currency substitution, monetary sovereignty, the ability of uh, monetary policies to um, um, uh, uh, exert control over, over financial conditions. Uh, so at that time, the FSB uh, launched work um, to develop uh, a, a framework for the regulation of, of stablecoins. And in um, October 2020, we issued high-level recommendations for, for the regulation of stablecoins. Um, and on this basis, there has been intensive work by the sectoral standard board uh, setters, CPMI, um, IOSCO, um, to uh, primarily to look at how existing regulations apply to, to stable coins. And I think one milestone in this regard is, um, is the, the, the CPMI-IOSCO um, consultation on the applicability of the, the, the PFMIs, the principles for financial market infrastructures, to stable coins that are systemically important. So that's phase two. Phase three started um, in 2021, I would say, uh, which was the second, uh, second wave, the second boom of uh, stablecoin markets, uh, sorry, of crypto asset markets, uh, then sort of comprising um, uh, new instruments, unbacked crypto, stablecoins, plus sort of a rapidly evolving uh, DeFi ecosystem um, and, and, and rapid growth. And um, on, on the basis of this rapid development, we uh, updated our risk assessment uh, early this year and said, look, um, these markets are evolving so rapidly and even if they do not pose a risk to global financial stability at the current phase, uh, we are getting close to that point. And this assessment uh, then uh, uh, triggered uh, work that we took forward in parallel to our work on stable coins, on other crypto assets uh, to develop a framework for um, or regulatory approach to address financial stability risks um, from the uh, 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 crypto asset ecosystem as a whole. Now, the fourth phase started in, in April, May with the, uh, with the turmoil in, in crypto asset markets that then resulted in the, in the crypto winter. And um, that, um, I think, has been interpreted in two ways. One was to say, well, we haven't seen wider financial stability impact, so there's no reason to worry. The other interpretation, which informed our work, was to say, okay, um, there is a temporary setback, a correction, if you like, in, in the markets, um, but crypto asset market development is going to continue. Markets are going to come back, so we should use this time to advance our work on a, a, a robust regulatory framework, um, not to curb innovation, but to strike a good balance and provide clarity from the regulatory side on how the global regulatory community sees a way forward that balances um, the containment of risks to financial stability, but also others, market integrity and so on, um, while leaving room for um, beneficial innovation to, to develop. And this is sort of where we are now, and this is what is reflected in the reports that we covered this week, which set out in the form of high-level recommendations uh, uh, what, how to approach all types of crypto asset activities and markets that may have impact on financial stability. And we also refined our recommendations for Stable coins. I'm happy to come back and provide more detail on that, but let me let me stop here for the moment. Thank you, thank you very much, Itrish. And it was very uh, uh, clear to, to see the, the four phases and the, and the development. And clearly now, um, crypto assets uh, are in our landscape, and uh, they will stay there. 
different types of crypto assets, the uh, first generation, Bitcoin-like, the stable coins, uh, and we have the development of uh, uh, decentralized finance with other types of uh, activities. Um, and so, um, of course, uh, it raises the issue of uh, interoperability, of fragmentation, of uh, uh, new actors. You mentioned that. Uh, don't. So, uh, if we start our second round, uh, focusing more on the cross-border payments, um, how do you see the interconnection among all these different uh, forms of digital assets? Um, we could expect that uh, digital platforms will play a greater role, but how uh, ensure uh, security in these platforms? We, we saw some, uh, um, uh, some uh, cyber attacks on these platforms. So how do you see, uh, how do you see the, the shape of the future cross-border payments, uh, interoperability among blockchains, among CBDCs, uh, between the uh, stable coins and the traditional finance, uh, how would this affect monetary policy and financial stability? And this in uh, three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Should I start? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Natalie. I think uh, cross-border payments certainly are a very fascinating area and important for the fund uh, members. So maybe let me just start by saying that cross-border payments work reasonably well among advanced economies uh, um, corridors, let's say. So between two pairs of advanced economy, you know, the correspondent banking relationships work reasonably well. Uh, but for many uh, lower income countries and emerging markets, some of the corridors uh, really suffer from uh, very costly prices, you know, high, very expensive, uh, uh, low efficiency, takes time, uh, lack of transparency. Uh, uh, so th these are the problems that have plague, plagued de developing countries for a long time. So digital assets really provide uh, a new opportunity uh, for us to uh, fix this uh, uh, decades-old problem. Uh, but it's not easy. I think, um, uh, Cecilia, I think you, know, you were the chair of the Future of Payments uh, uh, building blocks of the, cro uh, the cross-border payments initiative uh, uh, coordinated by the FSB. So you know f very well what are the, the challenges we have to overcome. But in order to understand these challenges, implications for monetary and financial stability, it's probably useful to start to ask what is the problem with cross-border payments? Why is it so difficult? So I think just to spend maybe uh, 30 seconds on this, that in the modern economy, we have basically central bank money and the commercial bank money. That's, that are primarily used for, uh, for payments. In the domestic setting, it's not that difficult because all the banks probably know each other. They are under the same regulatory regimes. The laws are the same. But you know, when you cross border, then all these things change. In the sense of the basic requirements, when I put my money in the, in the bank as a deposit, as commercial bank money, I have to trust that this bank will pay me back. So that's one important requirement. I, I have to trust the bank. The bank has to trust me that I'm financially, I have financial integrity in the sense that I'm not a terrorist, I'm not laundering money. So these are very basic requirements. But when we cross border, these requirements become exceedingly difficult it, because they are located in different jurisdictions. The banks find it very hard to trust each other, particularly for countries that you know probably are, you know, small, have smaller markets. They have only one or two correspondent banks re relationships uh, re in, in the economy. So that's why uh, it takes you know a lot of effort to establish these correspondent banking networks, and they often don't work very well. Um, so it's a very multi-layered, long payments chain kind of problem. Now, digital asset provide, provide an opportunity. Because as I mentioned earlier, you know, if we have, we can establish new instruments like central bank digital currency, it's very safe. Um, uh, and if we have new rails like multilateral platforms to trade this central bank digital currency directly and ask commercial banks to join or other non-banks players or join on the same network, that would make, it, make life much easier. They are subject to same governance rules. 
uh, that will certainly make, make life easier uh, to be, of course, supported by, for example, digital ID, so we know how to check financial integrity issues. But from a macro financial point of view, what are the newer issues? If it becomes very easily accessible at a large scale, of course, maybe traditional risks like dollarization could become more acute. You could have a digital dollarization. So that might be a downside for some of the economists. They have to worry that if their own residents have much easier access to foreign currencies, would that make their own monetary policy implementation uh, less effective? So that's one, uh, one worry. From a financial stability point of view, if you, it's very easy to have access to a foreign safe settlement asset like central bank digital currency or a very well-run stablecoin, would that increase risks of bank runs in the local system in times of stress? So that's a question that's, that's certainly worth, worth considering. Uh, so these are some of the newer issues. So on the one hand, we see a probably a very important opportunity to improve the efficiency, to have more financial inclusion, we have more households and smaller firms to, to be included in cross-border payments for them to have more uh, better access to lower cost payments. On the other hand, these are some of yeah. the potential risks we have to think about how to manage. Uh, so that's, that's uh, really. <laughs> okay, and so uh, Cecilia, mm. uh, several central banks have experimented uh, cross-border payment with CBDCs. Mm. So do you think that all these uh, expectations and improvements can be uh, provided by these CBDCs? Uh, so I think Dong has uh, kind of outlined it very well. Infrastructures are mainly national, uh, but the world has gone uh, global. Uh, and if you think about our predecessors who used to sit in this chair, sort of 50s, 60s, or maybe 70s and 80s, they built rails uh, for institutional money and then the multinational corporations. They, they have a pretty good setup of of making transactions across the world. And what we're really talking about now is, is, um, is person, people's, ordinary people's ability to make payments. And um, I'm, I'm quite optimistic. I, I think about other sectors in, the, in our world where it's, um, it's possible. We, we fly across borders. Uh, there is a system for, for, for airlines and security, and we, we trust it. Phone calls, we take our phones across the world. So, if these sectors manage to, 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 to provide that kind of services to society, we, we should be able to do it when it comes to payments. Getting more kind of specifically into your question, yes, uh, we have a number of interesting projects. So uh, I'll mention three of them, Enbridge, Dunbar, and Dura. Uh, a number of central banks, including Banque de France, has been important in, in experimenting, but it's about next generation uh, version of, of, uh, of uh, collaboration between central bank on one hand and, and the financial institutions on the other. And from the same DLT platform, there's been different experiments happening in these three projects. I'm not gonna get too much into the details, uh, but I can tell you a little bit about the results. And it's sort of clear that um, uh, um, they are uh, using what's called uh, wholesale multiple CBDCs uh, is operationally feasible uh, and it can bring efficiencies such as lower costs and, and faster settlements and also operational transparencies. Uh, but So that is the CBDC space when it comes to the um, service from central banks on one hand and, and the financial institutions on the other. Um, but we're also looking into uh, different aspects of what's called retail CBDC or kind of for, for, for person to person payments or for person to to merchants or to public sector and, and vice versa. Um, so uh, uh, currently uh, Project Icebreaker from, from the Nordic Center uh, compares um, DLT payment systems in the retail space uh, from Israel, Stock Sweden and Norway and look into can that be used for cross-border payments. Uh, we're looking into offline payments, how to make it um, 
private, uh, but not too private uh, to kind of get sort out this anonymity of one side, privacy on the other hand. Um, and we also kind of take part in the, in the G20 efforts to, to um, improve cross-border payments. The last thing I'll say is this is, the hub is about figuring out and showcase what can be done. What should be done is a, is a different matter. And here we have to bring in governance, rule books, um, um, possibly reviews in national legislations, because it's clear that national legislations did not accommodate for a world where we, everything was on paper to a world where nothing is on paper. Uh, so I think uh, there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, we are showcasing what could be done. Uh, the last thing also is that we need to collaborate with the ecosystem on this uh, rather than, than uh, kind of working in, in silos. Um, I think uh, there is always this fear that public sector is kind of overstretching or competing. But I think that sometimes in history, public sector plays a role as sort of nudging and pushing the private sector into a new equilibrium. And I think when it comes to cross-border payments and inclusion efficiency, that we have reached that point in history. Uh, and we should take that. And if it works, which we aim to do, uh, it will be good for society, it will be good for economies. And that, ladies and gentlemen, will be very good for the banks as well. So long-term, it will be very useful for banks to have well-working societies with which is growth enhancing uh, policies so i'll stop there but in that case with this uh, optimistic view when do you think it could fly <laughs> well uh, so i think the technology takes us part of the way uh, but uh, at the end of the day it become it, it comes down to political willingness mm. uh, and i think um, i think those who can should take the ball and run with it uh, and we are seeing some examples in the world where that is happening. Uh, and I think BIS here plays an important role as, as the kind of bridge between those who runs a little bit faster uh, and creates things. Uh, but we want in other countries to onboard. And I think if the BIS could sort of help the, the conversation across the globe from between those who runs quicker versus those who, who wants to take a bit more time uh, then, then I think we, you know, we have a, we have at least another a, a very exciting decade, I think, ahead of us <laughs> okay. in this area. <laughs> Diplomatic answer. <laughs> so, in addition to um, to CBDC, um, the FSB has also mentioned that stablecoins, well-regulated stablecoins, could help to uh, address existing frictions. Um, and lowering, lowering costs uh, for users on, uh, cr in cross-border uh, context. So, Dietrich, uh, how do you see this uh, perspective? Um, how uh, uh, do you expect that uh, we could define and uh, see well-regulated stablecoins? <laughs> because uh, uh, for the time being, it seems that stablecoins are not so uh, stable. Um, and so do you see uh, that it is really um, a, a possibility for uh, cross-border payments? Um, I think there's an excellent question. And um, the short answer is, I guess, yes, it is conceivable. And there are um, early examples, I would say. And I think uh, Brazil is, is a case where we are seeing innovation in the form of tokenization of bank deposits, right, which you can interpret as a stable coin issued by a bank. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I think uh, a, 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 a stable coin that uh, provides um, well-regulated, well-supervised, that provides an option for efficient, uh, speedy cross-border payments uh, exists. Um, uh, but of course, there are important preconditions that need to be met. And maybe it's useful to discuss these or briefly discuss these in the context of the alternatives. And, and uh, Dong, you mentioned our cross-border payments roadmap. There, we have we lay out essentially three alternative ways for making cross-border payments more uh, efficient, faster, cheaper, more inclusive, more transparent. And one is enhancements to existing systems. There, the issue is mainly 
um, one about interoperability, I would say, interoperability in a particular way, namely enhancing the interface between systems that already are there, right? Um, in terms of protocols, in terms of trading times or processing times and so on and so forth. The second area, the second alternative is CBDC. There, uh, making that work, interoperability, as, 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 as Don and Cecilia discussed, is about making sure that new systems um, are not just technically compatible, but are also compatible with the notion of monetary sovereignty in individual jurisdictions. And then you have stable coins. Um, stable coins are different in a sense that here, talking about private payments means that are subject to network economics, right? which means that um, the issue of interoperability is perhaps not so much an issue. It is more to make them robust, reliable, um, safe on a potentially global scale, because they could scale up very quickly. Um, so this takes us back to the, the question of proper regulation and supervision. And here, coming back to your point about interoperability, I would say, what is important is, and you could label this interoperability of regulatory and supervisory approaches, is that we have a global framework that is comprehensive and consistent, right? To avoid regulatory arbitrage, to avoid that risks can build up in areas that are not supervised. Um, so as I mentioned before, we've set out recommendations to this effect. The next stage is, is, is implementation, and, and uh, this implementation phase will be obviously critical. It will involve operationalizing our recommendations, checking to what extent existing regulations at the national level, but also at the international level uh, for, in, for individual sectoral standard setters do already apply. And I think this is important to note. Um, there is sometimes a sense that, well, um, stable coins, crypto assets, they operate in a regulation-free room. This is not the case, right? And, and uh, I think it is very important to recognize that and clarify that. Um, and then, uh, finally, it is very important um, to ensure that there is proper international cooperation in terms of information exchange at early stages of implementation, but also on an ongoing basis when it comes to the supervision of uh, uh, service providers that are active in, in, in many jurisdictions. Um, I think the task is clear. Um, making it happen is uh, not trivial, so a lot to be done going forward. Okay, so many, many things in our plate, <laughs> many aspects, many uh, operational aspects, but regulatory also, and uh, policy uh, issues also. Uh, I suggest that we stop there and, and check whether we have questions in, in the, from the audience. We have three minutes left for questions, so um, don't hesitate. We have touched upon many, many uh, topics. Can you answer all the questions? No, no questions. Um, Okay, so maybe, um, yeah, okay. Uh, there's a mic. We can't hear you. Um, a lot of the rationale for innovation often uses financial inclusion as the, the reason. And we find that that is uh, questionable. I'd love to know whether what, what you think about this. Uh, some of the, you know, the, the, I, we totally understand the you know, cross-border uh, facilitating person-to-person -person, that that could potentially have a, you know, could support remittances. But uh, a lot of the challenges that keep people from the formal financial system are precisely because they don't have access to technology or they don't have access, they don't have the <coughs> an ID and so on. I'd love to hear your take on kind of the rationale for some of the digital transformation work using inclusive finance as the rationale for it. I don't know who is, do you want to, to oh, Cecilia. So, 
So that's a great question. Um, and I think the reason for why it's being used is because um, we are in the business of trying to improve our societies. Uh, and this is a clear, uh, well, so far, not very impressed. It's a, mm -hmm. too much, in my view, it's too much cherry picking by the private sector. And those who really are in the greatest need of being on board with financial services are, are often left out, which is quite embarrassing, to be honest. Um, and um, I think the reason for why we all talk about it is that uh, we are seeing these technological changes as the uh, um, kind of leeway, kind of leverage to, to, to do something about this, to kind of start over in many different ways. Uh, I, I'm not sure exactly why you are questioning this, uh, but um, I, I think it's, I think it's in my view that the time in history, have, we have reached a time in history, we can really take a step forward in this. I, 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 I'm absolutely the first to agree that um, uh, kind of a, a mother of five in a Pakistani village won't be very happy if we come out with a wholesale CBDC. Um, so uh, there's a number of other things that has to be put in place. She has to have a digital ID. Um, she has to be able to understand what she's doing. She has to be able to tell her friends that, uh, yeah, this is a pretty cool thing. It works. It works repeatedly. And a woman with, a, with money in a digital form is a, is a lot better situation um, to plan and organize her future um, than a woman who is only having cash. So, you know, I, I, I think the vision here is, is, is strong for me. I don't know if you... We have to stop there. So uh, I think it was a very important uh, vision and uh, we can stop based on this vision of the future improvement for the society. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much.